0: Morning, you put your finger there while you're turning there, and while my eyes meet Jan Reese, who has recovered very nicely thanks to God's grace and your prayers. <clears throat> Most of you know that Jan was in a really horrific bicycle accident down Harrison Grade and was airlifted uh, to Memorial Hospital where she underwent um, surgery and all kinds of things. And she's three, four weeks ago. And uh, you're back in the second row. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> the other thing in the back of my mind is ladies' Bible study because I know things because I'm married to the leader. <laughs> and it, it, the last one of the year is tomorrow night. So bring a little... Something to share? Like food? Yeah. 6.30 tomorrow. Here. Isn't she cute? I think she's the cutest girl in the church. All right, here we go. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you, Father. Uh, for your grace and your mercy and all that you've done for us through Christ and making us your chosen possession. Father, we love you, and we want to give our lives back to you. Speak to us now through the power and the wonder and the living word of God, which you sent from heaven to save us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, from an episode of Nightline, from last year, I'll read the excerpt. The videos and photographs show scenes from a full and prosperous life, a couple getting married, raising children, celebrating the holidays, and taking family vacations, their precious memories. But the man who lived them cannot remember them, any of them. In fact, Scott Bolzen, who has no memory of any part of his life story. It's all been erased. These are things I know I should remember, said Bolzan, who's 47. My first date with my wife, our wedding day, the birth of our children, all of those memories that everyone else in the whole world shares, these are things I know I should remember. I have no emotional attachment to these days, even when I look at the pictures. Bolzen has an extreme case of severe retrograde amnesia. He slipped in the men's bathroom of his office and uh, hit his head on the ground. He can remember nothing that happened prior to the accident. Over the past 16 months, he has had to re-meet family and friends while embarking on a journey to relearn his life story and rebuild a sense of self-identity. The best word I can use to describe it, he says, is just being lost, because I lost who I am. Quote, it's hard to go forward when you can't remember who you are. Well, the apostle Peter completely agrees with that last statement. And writing to believers who are under great persecution, perhaps the most challenging in all the church history under Nero, uh, in order to live well and effectively and productive in the face of adversity, they must remember who they are in Christ. You know, sometimes trauma can do that. In this case, physical blow to the head or a spiritual blow to one's soul. And suddenly we forget who we are, who he is, and all of his promises and all his past faithful experience in our lives. Get the spiritual wind knocked out of us. And Peter says, let's not do that. Here in chapter 2, let me remind you. Who you are because of who he is. And so he's saying to us, You have a father. You are his child. Your father is maker of heaven and earth. He is not just a force, he is not a nameless spirit, he is not a higher power. He is your father. He has a name. The Lord is the rock of your foundation, your salvation is in him, you have a destiny and you have a God-given purpose. And so for the sake of those who might have missed last week, because this is kind of a part two message, we'll pick up and refresh at verses we've already read, but move on to the ones we will focus on this morning. Verse four, as you come to him, the living stone Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, see I lay us in Zion, the Jerusalem, a chosen and precious foundation stone, cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him shall never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. That means the crowning, molding, the crowning stone. And a stone that trips people up, causes them to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. And so we're going to conclude there for our portion of the scriptures to reflect upon this morning. Peter is saying, no need to have an identity crisis. One time I was in chapel at Bible college and a young man stood up and he said, pray for me. I'm having an identity crisis And to tell you the truth, I really just did not understand how you could be at Bible college and have the Bible, the biblos in Greek, the book, the owner's manual in front of you and say that I'm having an identity crisis. I don't know who I am. I can't find my way forward because I've lost my way. Well, knowing who Christ is and who we are, will really give us a sense of our identity and we will know the way that we will go. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Anybody who follows Jesus, John chapter 8 and verse 12, shall never walk in darkness but have the light of life because he is the light of the world. And so Peter's saying, you know, He's going to use this Jewish temple in Jerusalem as an analogy along with all of Judaism, its priests, and the practices as an analogy to remind his Christian readers who they are. And it's all because of who Christ is. So last week, we looked and considered the passage in light of who he is, the foundation stone. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the foundation For all of life, anybody who hopes to get into heaven, according to the Bible, is there's only one foundation possible. It's the God-man bearing your sins on the cross, dying the death that you deserve because of your sins, and then making a way for you to stand on that rock, his substitutionary death, on your behalf. We considered that last time. And now we're going to consider who we are in him. Three ideas, I think, in these verses about who we are. Number one, we are intimately connected to him. Number two, we are uniquely honored and privileged because of him. And number three, we are entrusted with great responsibilities. And so, number one, and as I said, in consideration of folks who missed the last message, we need a little brief context so god has inspired the apostle peter with this analogy to help christians understand more about jesus more about their relationship to him and our purpose in him and the bible does this a lot using metaphors and analogies to help us get what the kingdom of god is like well it's easy when he says you know the kingdom of god is like uh, a city on the hill you're a city on the hill that's all lit up at night and everybody from miles around can see the light and be guided, that's easy. Or if he says, you know, you're like fishermen, but only you're fishing for the souls of men. Well, bingo, instant, got it, right? But this time he's using an object that for the average contemporary Western American believer is kind of confusing because the object of the analogy is this Jewish temple in Jerusalem, not only the structure of it, but the priests inside, the altar, the sacrifices, all of Judaism. He's going to say, you know what you are in Christ? You're like that temple. And those priests, only in a spiritual way, doing God's work. And so the whole idea revolves around, and for you to get what Peter's trying to say, who you are and what you should be doing as a believer, you have to get the heartbeat of Judaism. And it all happened on the Temple Mount. Everything about Judaism really is the heartbeat of that whole uh, system was in this temple, this magnificent structure that filled 20 football fields in size, surrounded by a thousand columns, 30 feet high, six feet in diameter. It was made out of granite and precious stones and marble and cedar and plated with gold and adorned with precious gems. If it still stood today, it would be like one of the seven wonders of the world. It was amazing. Solomon's prayer, when he dedicated that 1,000 years before Jesus was born, he prayed, May your eyes, O Lord, be open toward this temple night and day, this place which you said my name shall be there. So that you will hear the prayer of your servant that he prays toward this place. And so for the Jew, everything about God, knowing God, being reconciled to God, pleasing God, getting to heaven, all had to do with what went on in those 20 football field length, uh, that building. And so he's going to say, listen, the prophets knew that Judaism was a prelude, a work in progress, not an end to itself, but a means to something bigger. The prophets knew, hey, there's something more than this temple and the priests and the altar and the sacrifices and the blood of bulls and goats. Something bigger, something grander, something wider, something more permanent, something more lasting. But We can't quite figure it out. Well, Jeremiah put it this way. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. That's in Jeremiah 31. And he says, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Kind of a permanent way to deal with sins once and for all. Now the writer to Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews chapter eight, and says, "Listen to this, he says, "By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear." Let me repeat that for you. There we go. I appear. <laughs> so Jeremiah' saying the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, a day is coming when this will be old. There's going to be a new covenant, a new promise, a new agreement, a new contract. The way God is going to deal. And so the writer to Hebrews is saying, by calling this a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete is aging soon will disappear. In other words, just the mention That there's a new covenant, a new testament, that's what it means, same word, is coming, means the old one is not the fulfillment of what God has in store. So Jesus arrives at this magnificent structure in which all of the Judaism is wrapped up inside. And Jesus says, when he hears them, oh, the temple this and the temple that. And the temple this and the temple that. And Jesus says, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. These are some of the statements that said, you know, we need to kill you for saying stuff like that. All right. And he said, for which of my good works do you stone me? And they said, oh, we're not going to kill you because you're doing good deeds. We're going to execute you because you, and I'm quoting the scriptures, you, a mere man, make yourself equal to God. Bingo. They get it. (laughs) They get it because he claimed to be such. He says, look at the temple. He goes, destroy this temple. I'll raise it up. It's not about this. It's about this. Because... It's time to fulfill everything that's going on in in Judaism in one person, in one action, for all time. He's saying, what's going on here, I'm about to make obsolete because everything here that you're looking at is a spiritual pointer to me. And I'm going to, by my act of laying down my life, on the same hill. Calvary is on the Mount of Zion, on the same hill, 1,000 years dress rehearsal of blood on the altar, blood on the altar, blood on the altar, bulls and goats. It can never stand for a human sacrifice for our sins. So God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, comes and he says, what one drop of my blood will do more. Than a thousand years of blood flowing from bulls and goats. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Jesus, um, by one sacrifice, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So Jesus himself had said to the Jews, He's saying, I'm doing a new thing here. He said, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Judaism, the temple, the priests, the sacrifices, are all the old garment and the old wine skin. The new has come in Jesus. The old is obsolete. It cannot be fixed. It doesn't work anymore. There are no priests in Judaism anymore. There are no sacrifices being offered at any temple. Why? Because the sovereign hand of God in A.D. 70 said, I did all that. We don't need the blood of a lamb because the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has come and gone and fulfilled the requirement. So God allowed the temple to come down completely. Where are your priests, Judaism? Where's the blood on the altar? Where are all your priests that that intercede and make Judaism what it is? How are your sins forgiven on the Day of Atonement if there's no blood on the altar which is prescribed in the Old Testament? There is no forgiveness of sins without blood on the altar. Where's the blood on the altar? There is none because God made it so. Don't need the temple anymore. When this temple, the temple, came down, This high priest offered not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own sinless body there. And he says, now the physical temple and its sacrifices, its priests are out of a job. They've become obsolete, but God's work, Peter's saying, continues on. So the foundation stone in Christ is spiritual, that he hung on that cross, and now he has made a foundation. Now it's time for the walls of this new work to come up, and God says, you are the building material. It's not about stones, they're living stones, it's about you. My life will be the Lord speaking in you and my work will be in your hearts and lives. People will form the walls and you will be the new priest doing a new work, offering different kinds of sacrifices. And so it's time to see now um, our part in this spiritual building that he's comparing us to interesting to me. And do you find it so that Jesus first, mention of the church is in a building metaphor he says to peter who do men say that i am and he says well some think you're john the baptist raised from the dead and some people think you're a good teacher and some people think you're a moral example and some people think you're the christ consciousness and some people think this and that and the other thing and then he says peter Who do you say that I am? Which is the defining question for heaven and hell. According to the scriptures, he says, you are the one, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And the Lord says, oh, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. And upon this rock of your confession that I am the living Lord. I will build my ecclesia, my called out ones. My church building will be built on me as Lord. I will be the foundation. You see, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, of course, it's the only foundation (laughs) that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he died. For your sins have rose again. You shall be saved. You see he said upon that rock. The confession. You are the son of the living God. You are Lord. And then we know this is the only foundation. That you can be saved. In fact the Bible says. For no one can lay any foundation. Other than the one already laid. Which is Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So Jesus his person His work on the cross is the foundation, and we who believe and confess his name are the building and the ones inside the building doing the spiritual work. So who are we? Number one, we are intimately connected to him. Here's the paraphrase. You've come to Jesus, this living foundation, living stone for your salvation, a foundation that many reject, but is God's chosen plan nevertheless. From this foundation, you are being built into his church, not physical walls of stone, but you are the living, breathing walls. His church is made of living, breathing people, and now we carry on the work the priests were doing inside the temple, only we offer spiritual sacrifices on the altar, not physical ones. So let's pause there with the first point, we are, who are we? We're an extension of him. That is so important to see. That we he's the foundation, I'm an extension of that foundation. I'm, I'm, a, I'm in his plan being about his business. So this is a very important, helpful idea to Christians who are having a, a tough time. If we are an extension of who he is and what he's all about, then we should expect the same kind of treatment. So number one, it says there, he's the living stone rejected by men. Chosen by God, exalted by God, but rejected in the world. Not very popular foundation. Who are you? You're an extension of a rock, a foundation that the world said, uh, no thank you. Rejected. They spit, literally, on the foundation. How much more the building that rises from that foundation So Peter will ask us in chapter four, why are you acting so surprised as though something strange were happening to you? You're an extension of Christ. Look at how they treated him. Listen to what Jesus says. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. Why do we take it personally? He says, listen, if someone is rejecting you, is this your stuff you're making up as you go? You're quoting me. And they're saying, I don't buy that. They're not saying, I don't buy what you're selling. They're saying, I don't buy who is selling you that stuff. That truth is not something I receive. Again, that was Luke 10. If you're taking notes, if the world hates you, Jesus said, if it rejects you. If it thinks you're crazy, if it doesn't get you, keep in mind that it hated me first. You are an extension. He's the foundation. You're the building stones. You're connected to him. You're reflecting. The foundation says everything. You are an extension of him. So Jesus says, my followers shouldn't expect to fare better than I did when I was here. If the head of the house, interesting again, with this house analogy. He says, if the head of the house is called Beelzebub, which means Lord of the devils. He says, now, if dad, the foundation stone, the author, the builder, the owner, is called Lord of devils. What are they going to call you when the walls spring up? They're not going to fall in love with a house upon whom the foundation was spat upon and rejected. And so he goes on. So the prophets saw this coming for you, who will be just like him, rejected and then exalted. That's the motif here. Rejected by men, but chosen and honored and precious and exalted by God. And that's the pattern. So listen to what the prophets prophesy about this weird connection to the foundation. The stone, Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the crowning stone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And so instead of saying, oh, I'm connected, I've, I've, hitched my wagon to somebody who's not very popular in this world and you have he ran around saying hey I'm the exclusive way all the other ways are liars everyone a false prophet except me his words I am the way, the truth, and the life no one gets to heaven but through me and me alone Everyone else who came ever and said, I am a way, a path of enlightenment, Jesus' words, who you say is a good teacher, he said, they are liars. Now, you've hitched your wagon to him. And you've got to go on reflecting and speaking the truth that he claimed. Therefore, you have to say, all other ways don't lead to God because Jesus said that I'm a Jesus follower. Therefore, I have to receive the reaction that Jesus received because I am a wall on the foundation of Christ. But the psalmist says, this is a marvelous thing. Oh, don't be too sad about it because rejection from men and in the world but honored in God's sight. So what is he saying? He's saying, look, he takes Jesus meek and mild, standing before Pilate, silent. And he takes him, and this weak, seemingly in the world, and they they crucify him, they beat him, and he lays down his life. But three days later, he raises from the death, he's destroyed sin." He's disarmed the evil one and the devil. He has forgiven all sins for all mankind. They just simply have to confess their sins and be reunited with him. This is marvelous. They reject him. They kill him. And God makes him the crowning stone. And then Jesus says, watch out if that stone gives way and falls you will be Jesus' words, not mine. Address the fan mail to Jesus. I'm <laughs> quoting him. He says, You will be crushed. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever simply believed in him should not perish. But if you don't believe and you reject, The blood that he shed on that altar for your sins, he says, Watch out, you're in a very dangerous place. And so, you know, I remember uh, being at work teaching in a college and a woman there who's living a lifestyle inconsistent with the scriptures. I've told you about her before. I'd never spoken to her, she knew I was a pastor break room was filled with all my colleagues and I walked through the door and she said I hate narrow minded born again Christians and slammed her fist on the, on the counter and she said it would be a nice place in this world if they were all dead I just stood there I was humiliated Everybody looked at me, and then I realized, I've got the real thing. I've got the real thing. I'm connected to somebody who makes people say, I wish you were dead because you make our lives miserable with your narrow-minded, one-way-only philosophies. Zero tolerance for everybody else. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the only way to get to heaven. I can give you scripture and verse. John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, there's no other way. So what am I supposed to do? Go around and say, well, your way is okay. I'm a Christian, so I have to take the rap with him. It's an unpopular thing to say, but it's what he said. I'm a Christ follower. I cannot change that. Like a lot of churches saying, whoa, wait a second, half the congregation is leaving. What Jesus may be meant to say, (laughs) I can't do that. I don't care if I have 12 people left. I have to be who I am. I am an extension of a foundation. I am the walls of him. (laughs) Praise God. (laughs) Moving on. As a couple rows clear out. (laughs) But I love you. And, and you know what? They say, what kind of love is that? You love me. You just said everything I stand for is a lie. Love speaks the truth. You don't have to be obnoxious about it or mean-spirited. But you know what? I can, please do not pat me on the back if you see the bridges out and give me a big warm embrace and just say, you know, I know you're really into that road and I guess... I'm going to let you go on it, but I happen to know the bridge is out. But I love you. Have fun. Here's some snacks. Some, some uh, <laughs> Here's some trail mix on the way. God bless you. You know, I don't want to offend you or anything, but I do happen to know it's a thousand foot fall. But go ahead. Love ya. <laughs> do you see? I'm stuck. We're stuck. We are stuck. And you have to make a decision. Am I going to be stuck and unpopular and rejected and then exalted? Or am I going to fit in here now and later be rejected? That is your choice. You must choose it. Point number two. We are uniquely privileged and honored. So we are intimately connected with him because we're the walls on his foundation. And we are uniquely privileged and honored. He uses four phrases here that blow the Gentiles' minds. Boom. Gentile just means not Jew. It just means, it's a word that means common, not special. I'm sorry, (laughs) you Gentiles. (laughs) Now, (laughs) Jim and Adam were, I don't know, Pastor Jim and Pastor Adam were flexing their muscles about something, you know, And they were just kind of one-upping me about stuff. And then I said, you know what? Let me quote a scripture. What advantage does the Jew have? Much in every way. (laughs) Which is really, the point here is not really in Christ. So I'm stealing my own thunder there, but that's okay. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people belonging to God. To make things easy, he's really saying the same thing in a different sort of way, a little bit of different nuances. Each of these descriptions uh, really expressing the same idea. We as believers have entered into the same honor and same exclusive relationship with the same moral obligations and responsibilities that Israel had. And the Gentiles were just, they heard about this chosen race and a royal priesthood and the seventh wonder of the world gleaming there in all its gold plating and the people belonging to God and all his miracles on their behalf. And they're like, wow. And Peter says, oh, things have changed. You are now able to share in that same privilege that Israel had. The things that were previously true about the chosen people, their glorious temple, and their honorable priesthood is still in essence true of believers in God's new work. Now, Peter is writing to five provinces, uh, different ethnicities, different languages, different social structures and statuses. And he says, listen, when you come to Christ, God creates... (laughs) a new race. He puts you living stones in this wall connected with one another in a community, but your new identity in Christ is strangers in this world, but he makes a new people out of you. No longer is white or black or Asian or anything like that. It doesn't count in Christ. He says you're a chosen, hand-picked the word for people there is race, genos in the Greek. He creates a new race. And it's awesome to see God's Spirit transcend our social status here. It is crazy for me as a pastor looking out over the audience to see in one row the diversity. You have somebody from the Redwood Gospel Mission. And then you have somebody, a dentist, or then you have, and I'm, ta- I'm thinking of people I'm looking at right now, and a lawyer. And you have young, and you have old. You have, oh, I'm sorry, I, I looked at somebody and said old. <laughs> I wasn't really looking at her, but if, if the shoe fits, no, no. Listen, I'm old. I'm old. I'm already older, 50. I'm 52. That's old. That's ancient. All right. Did I ask for an amen? Oh, my word. All right. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say, I went to the jungles in the Philippines. I couldn't understand a word they were saying, but I understood the sense of Christ the fragrance of Christ, the change in a life. And that day around the throne will be every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group because they will form the one hand-picked, chosen race that came out of a sinful world and was knit together in God's believing race of people Warren Wiersbe said somewhere a really good quote. He said, "When someone comes to Christ, God handpicks them out of the quarries of sin and cements them by His grace." into his dearly loved church, living stones knit together. So, you know, I don't have much time left, so what I'm going to say is you've got to understand the privilege of, the, uh, the, of Israel and, what, and Judaism and being the chosen race so that you understand what you have in Christ. The whole chosen thing, came down came started with this man named abraham who was related to somebody named eber so he was called a hebrew abraham the hebrew god chose him and handpicked him and put his love on him and said abraham i will make you into a great nation i'll bless you i will make your name great and you will be a blessing i will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you i will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. <laughs> How cool is that? And he said, and all your bio children will form this chosen race. Now, of course, you have to have faith. You couldn't just be born a Jew and well, you're in with God. You had to have the faith in this Yahweh to know him and be connected to him. But by and large, he was creating a biological race of people for a specific task. They were chosen because they were going to be the storehouse for the scriptures, the prophecies, the promises, the plan of salvation, the temple, the sacrifices. And from Abraham's own body, 42 generations later, Abraham, Isaac. Jacob, Judah, and then it goes on. 42 names through Mary's womb steps the living God, related in his human ancestry to Abraham. So they were chosen not just because he just chose somebody arbitrarily. He chose them to be the storehouses of the scriptures, the promises, and the lineage, human ancestry-wise, of the Christ. He comes through a Jewish family, the savior of the world. And in this regard, they are chosen. And in this regard, they are a holy nation. And holy nation just means holy set apart. For why? Why? For all of the purposes that I just mentioned. In Isaiah 49 and 6 he says. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. That you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So the chosen people were not just chosen. So God could just lavish his love on chosen Israel. He said I've got a purpose. You're set apart. You're chosen so that you Israel can bring my salvation to the ends of the world. Isaiah 49.6. So they had this holy priesthood. They were supposed to be the bridge for the rest of the world. So they were chosen and lavished upon for the good of the world. Because God always had his eye on the world. For God so loved the world. Well, what happened? Israel fumbled the ball, kills the quarterback, rejects the owner, and what does God do? He sidelines the nation. Done. You're not going to reach the world for me. I said, bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thank you. I will use this. And now I will give this privilege to another race the chosen race, the royal priesthood of people belonging to me. Not to replace Israel, but to pick up where Israel left off until God is done with the church age. When the church is removed out of the scene, then Israel will resume her work to bring salvation to the ends of the earth during the tribulation Period, 144,000 Jews will bring the gospel during the Great Tribulation when, according to Romans chapter 11, Israel has a massive conversion and they become, in the Great Tribulation, where the church is gone, they become the light. They become, according to the scriptures, a Christian nation. We do not replace them. We are working alongside where they have left off, they did their work. They produced our Jesus. They produced our testament, the Hebrew scriptures. They did their work. Jesus said, "Very thank you very much. I've got another plan to reach the world now. And when we are done, they will resume because Israel re- will remain there, the chosen nation that they are in the kingdom to come. Now, he says, check that out. Is that just crazy? Uh, Who else is like Israel, he says. He fights for them. He subdues nations. He opens seas for them to go through and closes them back on their pursuing enemies. He drops bread from heaven for them. You guys hungry? You're out in the desert. Look, I'm just going to drop it from the sky for you. Why? Do I do this for anybody else? No. I do this for you. You guys thirsty, I understand it's a little dry in the desert. Hit the rock, the water comes out. Do I do this for anybody else? No, I do it for you. A cloud to, to protect you from the desert heat over your heads. Do I do this for anybody else? No, not really. I have general grace and general kindness for the world because I'm God. And I love my creation. But in a special sense, you are my treasure. I cover you with my hand. I've graved you on my hands. Anybody messes with you, messes with the apple of my eye, says the Lord. And then Peter says, and all the Gentiles, all the gentle Gentiles, look at that and hear that sermon and go, whoa, what about me? And Peter says, oh, it's open enrollment, period. You can... You can elect to be elected. You can choose him and be engrafted into this wonderful plan where you will be chosen. You will be a royal priesthood. You will be a holy nation. You will be people belonging to God. So, finally, let me just wrap up with a couple thoughts. We are entrusted with this great responsibility. It's not all about being the apple of God's eye. It's about helping other people come into relationship with him. He says, you're a royal priesthood. You're doing work, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, here's the problem with this analogy as I wrap up. He says, you're, you're a priest of God, everybody. Every believer is a priest of God. Well, that's hard for us to. We don't resonate with that. What do you mean? I'm one of those old guys with the white beards and the funny hats in the Old Testament with the with the incense and the the royal robe and how do what do you I'm schlepping a lamb to the altar and, and with the blood and he says that's you. You're like, uh, I don't get that. Uh, and nor do I get the one if you say, call me a priest now. What do you picture when, <clears throat> when people find out that I'm a pastor? Uh, there's a maintenance guy around here who calls me Father Ross. <laughs> people just don't, we don't get that image. I, I'm not your father. <laughs> no, I'm not a father. I'm a pastor. I mean, we just have different images. So... I go to Sutter Hospital, and I'm visiting somebody two weeks ago, and there's no parking spaces. So I pull around, and there's one right by the door labeled clergy. (laughs) Okay, thank you. So I, I pull into it. I'm not sure what clergy means. I know it has something to do with being a pastor or a priest. And so I pull in. I go in, and there's a guard. And the window's there, and you could see where I parked. And he says, who are you here to see? I say, room 314, whatever it was. And he makes a name tag for me. And he goes, oh, wait, I'm going to leave. He goes, oh, wait, what's the problem? You'll need to move your car. And I said, why do I need to move my car? He goes, it's for clergy. And I went, okay, (laughs) I'm a pastor. He goes, (laughs) He looked at me like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm just ready to say, don't even make me prove to you that I am a pastor, because I will, <laughs> with great delight, I will start in Genesis chapter 1, and verse 1. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. <laughs> now, depending the image in his head, that was either... A compliment or an insult? <laughs> I choose to take it as a compliment. I don't know what he was thinking, but he's like, well, yeah, right, yeah. Everybody must say that when they park there, but I really am a pastor. <laughs> well, he says, you guys are all priests. Now, how did that happen? Because only, only you had to be born a priest. Nobody could go into God's presence except the priest. That's it. Yes, you could pray to God, but it wasn't the same. You could not enter the holy place unless you were a priest. And nobody could just say, I want to be a priest because I want to enter the presence of God. Sorry, Charlie. You had to be born in Aaron's line. You just couldn't take that privilege on yourself. But what happened there? And only he could go behind the holy of holy curtains and minister in the presence of God and represent the people to God and God to the people and offer the prayers. What a privilege. I'm in mean, the presence of the almighty God. Jesus on the cross, the sun stops shining. The holy of holy curtain tears in two. 30 feet by 70 feet, two tons, four inches thick tears in two from top to bottom, signifying this. Anybody who would like to minister and come into my presence and represent me through the foundation of Jesus Christ's death on the cross is welcome. He says, you are royal priests. They had a priesthood. You are the priesthood. Because Christ, the Savior of the world, lives in your heart and does his ministry through you. You now go into the world with Christ in your heart. The high priest living in you. And you're the one who's offering these spiritual sacrifices. What do they look like? Well, he says we lay our lives on the altar. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So he says, okay, the old high priest, they used to bring uh, a, a lamb or a grain offering. Guess what you bring? You bring your heart, your life. God, I love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. You give the word I obey. He says, that's number one. That's the kind of work you do. Number two, as a spiritual priest working in God's temple in this world, he says, we bring our financial gifts. Listen to what Paul says. I have received full payment even more from the Philippians. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Here's the line. They are a fragrant offering Acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. Oh, so Paul says, and Peter says, you are God's priest, but you're not bringing livestock. You're bringing support for ministry. He says God sees that as an offering, spiritual priest, that you are. Thirdly, he says we bring our praise. The worship service that we had, he says, that's your work. You're singing, you're praising God. Why is it a sacrifice of praise? Because it's tough. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like singing. who it, she's new. She sings a little bit differently. I don't know that song. I'm opting out. That's why it's called a sacrifice. You worship and it costs you something. That's what the Bible says is part of your job. But the best part, and with this I really do close, that you may declare the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The big picture of what the New Testament priest you do is to share your faith. And not in this dry evangelism way that sounds so sterile and something you do to people. It's something you are by declaring, listen, declaring the praises of him who's done such a wonderful thing for you, took you out of darkness, brought you into light. Your job is to impact people in darkness and make a difference. That's your job as a priest. Wherever you go, whether it's in the church, for example, halfway up the aisle, two Wednesday nights ago, I met this young man, Jeremy. Jeremy he said, Oh, I'm very interested and I'm getting my life together. And I I just don't, I'm not all the way there. And I said, let me tell you what he's done for me. 32 years. I'm still crazy about it. It just, he's revolutionized my life. He's given me joy. He's given me peace. He's given me hope. He's given me power over myself. And I said, all you got to do is pray that prayer that we've been talking about. And he says right there, can we pray that prayer now? And I said, oh, let me see. <laughs> let me think of that." <laughs> yeah, we can. Later he says, I felt something in my heart. I felt like warm and it was tingling and I felt like I was coming to life. And he's been here ever since. But you know what? We don't just do it here. We do it in... Everywhere there's darkness, everywhere where we just declare. Let me just tell you, look, you don't have to know the Roman road. You don't have to know all the scriptures. You say, I don't know really how to defend my faith. Can you declare the wonderful praises? Can you say, hey, I used to have panic attacks, but I accepted Christ and they're a lot better and he's given me peace. Or I didn't have purpose. I didn't have control or I had the sin problem. Can you say you know? I I used to have this longing, and now I feel satisfied. My marriage was this way, and now I accepted Christ. Can you declare what He's done? If you've got nothing to say, there might be a problem with the connection. He He's done things for you. Just share the Samaritan woman. She she's not been to Bible college. She's a woman in that culture. She's not supposed to be talking about religion to anybody. God stirred her up at the well, talked about this living water, and I think she got a little sip of it. (laughs) And she goes running back to town and she says, "Uh, Come meet a man that told me everything I ever did. A little bit of an exaggeration. He said, Look, lady, go bring your husband, bring him back. And she says, You know what? I'm not married. And he says, you're absolutely right. You've had four husbands or five husbands, and the guy you live with right now, you're not married to him. So, exactly, you are not married. What you said is true. And she said, oh, I perceive you're a prophet. (laughs) And then she changes the subject, but she got a little splash of something that got into her, and she goes running back. No scripture versus nothing. What a life. A life like hers. But she gets on a little box and she says, come meet this guy. Quote, could he be the Christ? And then at the end of John 4, it says, the whole village became saved. Quote, because of the word of the woman who said, come meet a man who told me all about my life didn't know anything. She had a lot of fears. But you know what? She could declare the praises. Wow. Who is this guy? He knew I had five husbands, and he knows I'm shacking up right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, that's what you call it, right? <laughs> Whatever. Moving on. <laughs> All right. So here's my last little close. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, people belonging to God, that's you. God's new temple is not in Jerusalem. It's all over the world, not made of brick and stone, but made of human lives. Me and you. Hearts he has transformed and filled with his presence. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are going about his altar with a song in our hearts and praises on our lips, helping others come out of dark into his wonderful light. Because once we were not a people, and now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your great love that once we were not a people, we didn't have your blessing. We were groping around in the dark trying to figure things out. Then you revealed your son to us, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And we believed, we trusted, and you've revolutionized our lives. Thank you for all the joy and the privilege and the honor, but also of the responsibility. Help us to be uh, faithful with that obligation that we are blessed to be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.